Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Daniel Allen, a pediatric resident here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Our discussion today is a part of a series of episodes on commonly encountered mental health conditions in the pediatric clinic setting. My co-host is Vuk Batsmanovic, a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Thanks for the introduction, Daniel. Today, we are also joined by Dr. Chris Drescher, who is a clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Health Behavior at Augusta University. Welcome, Dr. Drescher. It's a pleasure to be here. We will be kicking off our podcast series with a discussion on major depressive disorder in children and adolescents, which we will refer to as MDD for short. Specifically, we will define MDD and recognize the common symptoms in children and adolescents, discuss the differential diagnosis for pediatric patients presenting with depressive symptoms, recognize validated screening tools, review treatment options including cognitive behavioral therapy and pharmacotherapy, and finally, know when the patient needs a referral to a mental health specialist. So, let's get started. Luke, why don't you start us off with a typical clinical case? Sure thing. Our patient is Samantha, an 11-year-old girl that presents to your clinic for her annual well check. Samantha has been your patient since she was a newborn and has no medical issues. During the visit, mom reports that Samantha has been complaining of abdominal pain. At first, it was only a couple of times a month, but now the complaints are daily and she begs to stay home from school every morning. No known triggers have been identified, but she is skipping breakfast and never finishes her dinner. You notice that she has lost a few pounds since her last well check a year ago. On the weekends, she sleeps in, and lately, she seems to be more irritable with her six-year-old brother. Her mom thought that maybe she was starting puberty, but Samantha's teacher called last week with worry that her grades have also started falling lately. Her mother then becomes tearful and reveals that she separated from Samantha's father about nine months ago. She is worried that all of Samantha's symptoms started shortly after that. As part of her well check, you talk to Samantha on her own. She becomes tearful and says that she has been feeling guilty and sad about the separation of her parents. There is a strong family history of depression. Wow, there is a lot going on in this case. Yes. So how would you start the evaluation? First, we need to explore this vague abdominal pain. While it may be related to depression, we do not want to miss something else that could be contributing to the abdominal pain, such as a pathological disease process. Luke, what are some common causes of abdominal pain that we need to rule out? Well, since the abdominal pain has been going on for at least nine months, the simple things could be something like constipation or gastroesophageal reflux disease. We should also consider malignancy or inflammatory bowel disease with the weight loss. That's right. Ask about the presence of alarm symptoms or signs. These include unintentional weight loss, blood in the stool, vomiting, diarrhea, persistent right upper or right lower quadrant pain, unexplained fever, joint pain, or rashes. Any of these symptoms warrant more diagnostic evaluation. A thorough physical exam is also important. Book, what should you look for in a physical exam? Alarm signs on abdominal exam should include localized tenderness over the right upper or right lower quadrants. You should also look for localized fullness or mass effect, an enlarged liver or an enlarged spleen. Check for costovertebral angle tenderness, tenderness over the spine, and perianal abnormalities. Great job. So if these alarm signs and symptoms are all negative, we can feel comfortable about exploring other causes. Dr. Drescher, I'm worried that Samantha is showing signs of depression. I agree, Daniel. Those with depression often have symptoms that include loss of interest, decreased energy, irritability, decreased concentration, and feelings of guilt. Samantha is experiencing a significant life stressor, the separation of her parents. While her guilt and sadness of the separation may be a natural response, she's having somatic symptoms. 
More specifically, frequent abdominal pain. Her appetite and weight are down, and her academic performance is also suffering. Her family history of depression also increases her risk. Dr. Drescher, you called Samantha's abdominal pain a somatic symptom. What exactly are somatic symptoms? Good question, Book. Somatic symptoms are subjective symptoms that patients report, such as headaches, stomach aches, and joint pains. Patients do feel these symptoms, but there is no associated disease or cause identified. Somatic symptoms are more common in younger children with depression, especially those less than seven years old. This is because they may have difficulty articulating or expressing their depressed moods and emotions. In this age group, irritability, decreased attention, and impaired concentration may even mimic attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. Daniel, given this case so far, what is your differential diagnosis? Overall, the differential is quite broad for this case. Book already mentioned some potential medical causes, but other conditions to consider include hypothyroidism, anemia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and mononucleosis. Some medications, such as benzodiazepines, opioids, and antiepileptics, can cause some depressive side effects. Antibiotics, estrogens, as well as corticosteroids may also cause depressive symptoms. Also, for any child that's experienced a significant change from her baseline, I want to rule out any possible trauma that may have occurred, such as bullying at school, sexual abuse, or other conflicts with peers. The differential diagnosis for a psychiatric disorder include mood disorders, such as major depressive disorder, or MBD, anxiety disorders, such as generalized anxiety disorder and separation anxiety disorder, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, or ADHD, bipolar disorder, adjustment disorder, or substance use disorder. Book, tell us about Samantha's physical exam. Overall, Samantha is a well-appearing child sitting on the exam table. However, I noticed that she is looking towards the ground during the entire visit. Otherwise, her physical exam is unremarkable. She has no lymphadenopathy, lungs are clear to auscultation. Cardiac exam shows regular rate and rhythm with two plus peripheral pulses, a soft and non-tender abdomen with no palpable masses, intact neurological exam, and appropriate skin tone. I think the most concerning part of the exam is that Samantha is looking towards the ground during her entire visit. Minimal eye contact can be seen with anxiety, depression, autism spectrum, or as a normal practice within some cultures, so context is very important to remember. For Samantha, this is a major change from her previous visits, where she was very interactive. The Mental Status Exam, or MSE, is a useful tool to help when differentiating between a variety of systemic conditions and neurologic and psychiatric disorders. Let's review how we can apply the MSE to our patient, Samantha. We will include a link on the full details of the mental status exam on our show notes. So, Vuk, the first part of the MSE includes general observations. What do you notice about Samantha? Well, on first observation, Samantha appears overall well and is not ill-appearing. Her clothes and hair are neat. However, while she is cooperative with my questions and exams, she barely makes eye contact with anyone in the room. When she does talk, it is with a paced and quiet voice. She keeps her arms folded around her abdomen. Great observations, Vuk. When observing the appearance of a patient, you should look for any physical abnormalities. This includes things such as pupil size, bruising, needle marks, tooth erosion, superficial cuts indicating self-harming habits. Observe the child's behavior. Is he or she acting appropriately for her age and situation? Is the child cooperative, hostile, avoiding eye contact, or any other noticeable movements? Observe the child's speech, including volume, rate, articulation, and amount. Vuk, how would you describe Samantha's mood and affect? 
Well, she's saying she's feeling very sad and guilty that so much attention is on her today. Mood is the patient's expression of how they feel, and affect is the examiner's perception of the patient's mood. When we talk about a person's affect, we are describing the range of emotion shown and whether it is appropriate with the mood. Affect can be categorized as intense, more than normal, full, which is average, constricted or limited, blunted or shallow, or minimal, and flat, which is no emotion at all. The sad mood with constricted affect is evidence that Samantha is struggling with something as most children are often much more expressive with their feelings and emotions. The MSE also includes observing the patient's thought content and thought process. That's right. Thought content refers to what is the patient thinking? Is there a presence of delusions, suicidal or homicidal ideation, phobias, obsessions? While thought process refers to the patient's form of thinking, a patient's thought process describes how the patient expresses their thoughts and might be described circumferential, disorganized, or tangential, among others. Another relevant part of the MSE for Samantha includes the patient's insight and judgment. Insight is the patient's awareness of their problem. Judgment is the patient's ability to understand the outcome of the problem and to make decisions based on that understanding. So earlier we noted that Samantha's academic performance has also been suffering. Yes, Samantha's falling academic performance may also be an indication that her cognitive functioning is being affected in regards to attention and memory. The MSE includes an assessment of the patient's cognitive functioning in regards to consciousness, orientation, memory, fund of knowledge, concentration, writing, and abstract thinking. Daniel, with all this information we've gathered about Samantha, have you narrowed your differential diagnosis? Given Samantha's history and the length of symptoms, a depressive mood disorder is at the top of my list of differentials. I agree that major depression would be a leading diagnosis. To diagnose a patient with major depressive disorder, the patient must have depressed or irritable mood and anhedonia. Anhedonia is the loss of interest in things or activities that previously caused pleasure. More specifically, Samantha has signs and symptoms of major depressive disorder, or MDD. The Diagnostics and Statistics Manual 5th edition, commonly known as the DSM-5, outlines the core symptoms and diagnostic requirements. A really quick mnemonic to help you on your board exams and in the midst of a busy clinic is the mnemonic D-I-G-S-C-A-P-E-S for Digscapes. Fook, could you walk us through what Digscapes stands for? So for the mnemonic Digscapes, D stands for depressed mood, I is for interest, more specifically loss of interest, which is known as anhedonia, G is for guilt or feelings of worthlessness, S is for sleep disturbances, C is for concentration difficulties, A is for appetite or weight change, P is for psychomotor activation or retardation or loss of energy, and finally S is for suicidal thoughts. Excellent. The Digscapes mnemonic covers all nine of the core sentences of MDD, and it's an awesome acronym. I mean, who doesn't dig capes? I can't argue with that at all, Daniel. The DSM-5 says you need at least five of the Digscape symptoms for at least two weeks to meet the diagnostic criteria. The symptoms also have to meet four additional criteria. The symptoms must cause clinically significant distress or impairment in an area of life, such as academic or social setting. 
The symptoms also cannot be attributed to the effects of a substance or other medical condition, or better explained by another psychiatric disorder such as PTSD. There also cannot be a history of any manic or hypomanic episodes. You mentioned hypomanic episodes. What do you mean by those? Hypomanic episodes are episodes with elevated mood and activity that do not cause impairment, which differentiates them from manic episodes. Okay, so this is all some really great stuff, but let's take a minute to review for our listeners. The Diggs Capes symptoms are depression, loss of interest or anhedonia, feelings of guilt, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, psychomotor changes, changes in energy, and suicidality. The patient must have five of these symptoms for at least two weeks, with at least one symptom either being depression or anhedonia. The symptoms must also impair function in some part of their life to meet the criteria for MDD. So now that we know what MDD is and how it presents, what should I do if I suspect depression in one of my patients? That's a great question, Book. What I would say is if you have a patient you're concerned about, you should perform additional screening. There are multiple screening tools available, some of which are more appropriate for different age groups. Some of these screening tools are also freely available, while others are not. Are there any guidelines or recommendations for what age to start screening? Excellent question. It's important to mention that both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommend screening for depression starting at the age of 12. There is insufficient evidence that validates general screening before the age of 11. So, what are the specific tools that can be used to screen these adolescents? Two of the most common tools that have been studied are the Patient Health Questionnaire for Adolescents, or PHQ-9A, and the primary care version of the Beck Depression Inventory. The PHQ-9A, which is freely available, is an adaptation of the well-known PHQ-9 that is focused on addressing depressive symptoms in adolescents. It includes several extra questions that are geared toward assessing the risk of suicidality. In contrast, there is the Beck Depression Inventory, which is not freely available. What about children who are younger, who are unable to understand the questions on the PHQ-9A? Great question, Book. There are other screening tools available for our younger patients. One tool that I recommend specifically in children under the age of 12 is the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression Scale for Children, or CESDC. This tool, also freely available, has been studied in children as young as six years and is worded to be more friendly for the younger population. There are a total of 20 items with a suggested cutoff score of 15 for depression. It also provides percentiles for comparison to both other children diagnosed with mental disorders as well as healthy comparisons without mental health disorders. Let's review those screening tools. The freely available PHQ-9A is a great tool to use for screening adolescents and has score delineations to indicate mild, moderate, and severe symptoms. For screening of younger children from 6 to 12 years, there is the CESDC, which is also freely available. Links to both of these resources will be available in our podcast description and show notes. Okay, so I think it is clear that Samantha has signs and symptoms of MDD and other medical causes have been ruled out. What are the treatment options? So there are two broad options for treatment of MDD. Psychotherapy, which normally entails cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. And then there is pharmacotherapy, which is typically your antidepressants. Dr. Drescher, let's review first what cognitive behavioral therapy involves. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, helps people become more aware of their thoughts, behaviors, and feelings, and how they can develop more adaptive thoughts and actions. 
For depression, this usually means increasing behaviors that are rewarding and enjoyable, as well as incorporating more helpful thoughts about themselves, their future, and the world. The American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines give a very strong recommendation with grade one of evidence for CBT and interpersonal therapy for mild depression and psychotherapy in combination with medication for moderate to severe depression. Many studies have shown that CBT and antidepressants can be helpful separately or in combination for depression. The choices around antidepressants and CBT often come down to family preference, with some families strongly preferring therapy alone, some primarily interested in medications, and others open to a combination of approaches. An important pearl to note is that if suicidality is a concern, the best method to minimize suicidal ideation and treat emergent suicidal events is to add CBT to pharmacological treatment. Patients with suicidality should also be referred for urgent psychiatric evaluation. Dr. Drescher, what is the best way to approach questioning these patients about suicidality? That can be a difficult topic to bring up with most patients, not just the pediatric patients. Of the screening tools mentioned earlier, the PHQ-9A does ask about suicidal thoughts, but it's important to ask any patient you're concerned about. Asking, do you ever feel as if you would be better off dead? Have you ever wished you could go to sleep and never wake up? And have you ever wanted to end your life are possible ways to phrase your inquiry. I think many providers feel uncomfortable asking these questions, but it is so important to ask if there is any concern. Okay, let's get back to our patient, Samantha. After a discussion with Samantha and her mother, everyone agrees to a trial of CBT. You go ahead and place a referral to a local pediatric psychologist and plan a follow-up in one month. At her one-month visit, you notice that Samantha's symptoms have neither improved nor worsened. Her MSC is unchanged, and her mother is concerned that the CBT is not helping as much as she had hoped. At this time, both Samantha and her mother are interested in starting medications. The American Academy of Pediatrics Guidelines for Adolescent Depression in Primary Care recommends a psychiatric evaluation for any child before starting antidepressants. In regards to pharmacotherapy options for children, general providers should typically use selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. SSRIs are also used to treat anxiety, which is helpful when a patient has a comorbid anxiety disorder. Fluoxetine tends to be the general first-line agent. Yes, the AEP recommends fluoxetine as the first-line agent. It should be started at a low dose, generally 5 to 10 milligrams, to minimize side effects and titrate it up as needed for efficacy. The guidelines recommend increasing the dose every 4 to 6 weeks until a therapeutic effect is reached or the dosage is maxed out. A meta-analysis from 2017 compared a wide variety of interventions for depression in pediatric patients. It found that only two interventions showed significant benefit when compared to placebo, fluoxetine alone and fluoxetine plus CBT. And what if a patient does not respond to the first SSRI? Other SSRIs, such as escitalopram, which is also FDA-approved for adolescents, or sertraline, which would be an off-label use, have been found helpful to treat MDD in children and can be prescribed depending on the comfort of the general provider. The AEP's guidelines recommend tapering off the current medication and starting one of the second-line therapies. If you are considering a second-line medication, you should go ahead and refer to a psychiatrist specialized in children and adolescents. It is also important to mention that SSRIs have a black box warning from the FDA due to studies showing an increase in suicidality among children, adolescents, and young adults. But the FDA also revised their warning in 2007 to state that depression itself also causes an increase in suicidality. 
As such, the risks and benefits of pharmacotherapy should be weighed in every case. A referral to a mental health and behavioral specialist should also be made if patients are either not improving despite treatment, their symptoms are worsening, or they start exhibiting suicidal ideation. I guess the frustration I encounter often is finding available pediatric mental health resources that will be covered by insurance and then the long wait list to schedule an appointment once a referral is made. Yes, unfortunately, access to resources is the elephant in the room. Depending on where your practice is, there may not be many or any resources available nearby. This makes it even more important for clinicians taking care of children to be trained to treat mild and moderate depression. Again, the AAP provides guidelines that we have mentioned earlier are helpful resources while waiting for referrals. Even when it can take time for a referral, providing psychoeducation to families about depression can go a long way towards helping them manage until they can get in with a mental health specialist. This can be as simple as validating Samantha's feelings and difficulties with the separation and assuring her that it was not her fault. It would also be appropriate to provide her and her parents with skills such as active listening as well as introducing the thought of addressing any possible temporary measures to reduce stress. Links to some available resources will be available in the show notes. But remember, psychiatric referral or referral to the emergency department is warranted if patients are having suicidal thoughts or attempts or with depression that is not responding to your treatments. Well, it's time to wrap up our episode today. In closing, Daniel, let's summarize the main points that we want our listeners to remember. I will start us off. Remember that the potential differential diagnosis for depressive symptoms can be broad. Children often first present with atypical symptoms of MDD, such as somatic symptoms, so rule out medical causes for symptoms first. Remember the Diggs Capes mnemonic. Depressed mood, loss of interest or anhedonia, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, sleep disturbances, concentration difficulties, appetite or weight change, psychomotor activation or retardation or loss of energy, and suicidal thoughts. Yes, remember that you need at least five of the Digscape's symptoms for at least two weeks to meet the diagnostic criteria for MDD. Don't forget to also utilize validated screening tools when you suspect major depression. Therapy with an approved SSRI, like fluoxetine, is effective in treating MDD in children and adolescents. Cognitive behavior therapy is also effective and can be an adjuvant to pharmacotherapy. Go ahead and make a referral to psychiatry if symptoms are not improving with acute interventions or there are signs of severe depression. And finally, psychiatric referral or referral to the emergency department is warranted if patients are having suicidal thoughts or attempts or with depression that is not responding to your treatments. You've summed it up, guys. Pediatricians play a really crucial role in identifying children and adolescents with depression and making the appropriate referral or providing treatment. I hope the podcast today has helped people feel a little bit more confident when working with patients with depression. And additional thanks to Dr. Dale Peoples, Dr. Rebecca Yang, and Dr. Zach Hodges, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember, All content provided during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. If you are interested in earning some CME, please check out our website and show notes. 
We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.